but you know, I would have these conversations and people would often say, well, okay, so, but really tell me the truth. Is it the pet or the owner? Mm-hmm. You know, like, where is the true problem? And the answer is <laughs> <laughs> like, who do you want me to throw into the bus, right? Like the blame game is not helpful here, but it's kind of the same idea, right? It's the intersection, right? It's like, well, what is the owner showing up with? What is the animal showing up with? How are they communicating with one another? And what can we actually modify? I think about that medical behavioral intersection in much the same way. everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of Dog Lab. This is Brian Burton. Well, we have a special treat for you today. World-renowned veterinary behaviorist and lecturer, Dr. Chris Pockle, has joined us to discuss a sometimes confusing topic, medical issues and how they can cause or contribute to behavior issues. The more experience one gets with dog behavior and training, the more and more it becomes evident that some behavior issues are related to a seemingly unrelated medical issue. But here's the thing, just like chronic or acute pain or inflammation or UTIs or hormonal problems or neurochemical imbalances can cause people to be more irritable, depressed, or sometimes aggressive, the same thing can happen to our dogs. And the only way they can communicate this to us is through body language or even sometimes aggression to allow us to know how they're feeling. And this communication can be so subtle that it takes an expert in canine body language or even medical diagnostic tests to get to the bottom of. One of my biggest regrets as somebody who has been training for well over a decade was not seeing these medical contributors to behavior in my early cases. While for most behavior cases, you will need behavior modification and training, there are some cases, as we discuss here, where the underlying medical cause is what needs to be addressed for the problem behaviors to decrease and for your dog to feel more happy and comfortable. Thankfully, Dr. Pockle helps us understand the situations where a veterinarian or a veterinary behaviorist or another veterinary specialist may need to be brought in and how you can best help your veterinarian understand your concerns and that they have the right information for them to help you and your dog move forward. Dr. Christopher Pockle received his veterinary degree from the University of Minnesota in 2002 and became board certified by the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists in 2010. He has operated both house call and office-based behavior practices and is currently the owner and lead clinician at the Animal Behavior Clinic in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Pockle lectures regularly throughout the U.S. as well as internationally, teaches courses at multiple veterinary schools in the U.S., and has authored several articles and book chapters on topics such as intercat aggression and pet selection for animal-assisted therapy. He is a sought-after expert witness for legal cases involving animal behavior and is also vice president of veterinary behavior on the executive leadership team for Instinct Dog Behavior and Training. Remember to follow us on Twitter at doglab underscore podcast and email us any questions or topic ideas to doglab at instinctdogtraining.com. So here is Dr. Christopher Pockle. Dr. Chris Pockle, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Brian. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. And we actually have our co-host sort of for the first time officially, Sarah Frazier, who's done a couple of other episodes as a sort of half 
host and guest, but coming on as a co-host to help. Co-host slash color commentator. Yeah. <laughs> Someone else to keep me in line. I, I hear this. Yeah. There. I hear it. I hear it. <laughs> no, this is such a good topic. I, uh, I, I mean, they all are, but yeah. Yeah. Happy to be a part of it. Cool. So today's topic is about how medical issues can cause or contribute to behavior problems. R- super important topic, something that we deal with all the time. But let's just start with, you know, how common is it to see these medical issues or, or, or to see medical issues causing or, or contributing to behavior issues? And are these issues always obvious to pet owners? Yes, there's there's a lot that we can tease out there. And, you know, and anybody who's listening to this, I mean, you, you probably know already that this is anything but a straightforward topic, right? There's mm-hmm. so many rabbit holes. There's so many deep dives that we can and will do within the conversation. And, you know, and I, I love just the, this starting point, like how hard should we be looking? I mean, truthfully, how common are these issues? And, you know, I, I, I could answer that in a couple of different ways. On one hand, I, I, I would say, I think they're probably more common than we realize and probably more common than we'll ever know because we don't have a dog who's basically showing up and tapping us on the shoulder and saying, hey, you know what? I don't feel so well. And that's, you know, that's affecting my level of resilience today. So I'm going to be a little close to the surface. And so if you could just, you know, we don't get that benefit. And so we don't have the opportunity to really know exactly when it's there. And I think one of the other tricky things that goes along with that is that, you know, let's say we do a comprehensive physical exam and we run a, you know, a battery of tests and we do radiographs and, you know, and, 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 and we find a bunch of stuff that still doesn't actually even mean that they're correlated, right? We could have two separate problems. We could have a medical mm-hmm. issue and a behavioral issue. And to really draw a, a, a causation or a cause and effect relationship between the two is, is even trickier. So, you know, as we're looking at these things, I think that really brings me back to that initial question of how common is it? And I, I don't know. Right. I think, you know, we can look at some of the studies and say, how often do we find an abnormality on physical exam or diagnostic testing? And how often do those animals have a behavior concern? And we're not necessarily guaranteeing that we're talking about the same population or a distinct relationship. And anybody who looks at scientific study and sort of the the difference between causation and correlation, you know, really understands the difficulty and the nuance within that. Um, and, and I think that's a big, a big part of, of this starting point of the conversation, truthfully. Yeah. And it's, it's something as well, where there are times where I feel like we, uh, like we as a general population, like underestimate how much it happens. And then I feel like there's another part of the population that's like, we always need to rule out medical stuff before we do any training or behavior program. And I think over the years, I've started to steer away from that, that unless there was something sort of, you know, really, or something that where, where I start to become suspicious. So my spidey senses are up, those types of things. That's when I'm going to start to go down that path. I did want to bring that up because I, I feel like there's a different opinions on this. So that, so that was one thing I also just wanted to get to. So before we get into the different types of you know medical issues that can cause behavior issues. If someone says to you that I always recommend we rule up medical 
issues first, which sounds great, but not always the most practical. So I know it's a little hairy and a little nuanced there, but I thought I thought I'd get your thoughts on that. Well, and yeah. I wonder too if it's one of those situations where I think we probably all do it, but I would love to hear Chris your thoughts on it is are there factors that go into you saying we probably should put more emphasis on seeing if there's an underlying medical cause like breed or age or other things that an owner might not think of as being a cause for concern, but that to you as a vet, you say like, "Mm, we better dig a little deeper on the medical side before we go ahead with behavior stuff. Oh God, these are good questions. Okay. So (laughs) everybody settle in. We're going to be here a while. (laughs) I'm going to get comfortable in my seat here a little bit. Um, So, so yeah, so, oh gosh, so, so many layers to that. Um, I, you know, to your point first, Brian, you know, in terms of the, you know, how hard are we pushing and then coming back to kind of when, when does my spidey sense sort of go up a little bit more? You know, I I think that, as you said, in the ideal world, my sort of catchphrase with my clients is if everything was convenient and nothing cost money, let's run with it, right? Let's, let's, let's take the time. Let's grab the diagnostic tests. Let's do the things. Let's really make sure You know, and the reality is, at least in my perspective, even if there's an underlying medical component, there's almost always, I I want to say always, but I had to put that little caveat in there because always and never are almost always incorrect, right? (laughs) So (laughs) there's almost always a, a learning component there as well. So somebody who's stepping in from a training or behavior consulting role you know, I think that becomes a little bit of the boundary setting to say, hey, I can help with the learning component. I can help you to build a different conditioned emotional response. I can help you to build an operant sequence around this set of circumstances. And if there's an underlying medical issue, we may not reach clinical resolution. We may not get to the point where we're able to really resolve this issue. So this is likely to be collaboration. Let's get started, and perhaps we're, we're able to work these two lines of inquiry sort of in parallel tracks. And so I, I think that there's there's a lot of opportunity there. And, and I think that for me, just as you said, there's a lot of differing of opinions. Uh, the same thing is going to be true on the veterinary side. There are going to be some some veterinarians or some veterinary behaviorists would say, no, 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 we absolutely have to rule out those medical issues. And, you know, and yet, as you said, sometimes that's not practical and maybe that's not the best immediate use of the times, uh, the, the client's time or energy or financial reserves, you know, depending on sort of where that acute need really is. As you know, sometimes one or two, you know, triage, management, leash handling, you know, sessions can do everything in terms of maintaining safety mm-hmm. while then we can, you know, kind of buy time to explore the medical if we went medical first, we might have a bite incident that prevents us from going further, right? So you, you, you have to kind of look at, in my opinion, you have to kind of look at both those sides and say, hey, where's, where's the opportunity that we have within this case to have the greatest impact without right. losing sight of those other variables? I so. love the way you said that too, and it kind of, again, highlighting and coming back to the importance of wherever possible, having that collaborative relationship between the veterinary side and the training and behavior side. Because to your point, if you decide to do things in tandem and you get this huge amount of progress and learning from the dog very quickly with behavior, that kind of tells us something potentially or informs the how deep do we have to dig on the medical side? Or is this truly mostly a behavior and a learning issue? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And and I think that comes back to your other point too, Sarah, which was the, you know, when are those times or are there some of those indications where we may say, hey, yeah, we can do some training and behavior stuff and I'm really going to push a little bit more. And, and I think for, for me, the, the top two things that I think really jump out to me just right top of mind when I hear that question is relative to the acute versus chronic nature of a behavior change, right? So right. if we have, you know, let's say, you know, a, a, a particular pattern, whether that's a, you know, sleep-wake cycle, whether that's a social interaction pattern, whether that's an, a mealtime routine, whatever it is, if we have something that has been stable for a quote-unquote long time, which is, you know, depending on what we're talking about, we might define that a little bit further, but, but something that's been stable for a long enough period of time, we say, wait a minute, and then suddenly there's been an acute shift in behavior. Unless we've got a traumatic experience or something else that we can pin that on from a, from a one-trial learning type uh, experiential standpoint, yeah, we really, we really should be looking. Is there, you know, is there a source of pain? Do we have a tooth abscess? Do we have you know, pancreatitis? Do we have a urinary tract infection? Do we have osteoarthritis that's just, you know, hit that critical threshold where it's now, where it's now manifesting as, as pain or discomfort? So I, so I think an acute perception of behavior changes is one of those red flags that for me, uh, to some degree, let, let's stick a pause button on the training or at least mm -hmm. be aware that we need to be a bit more aggressive on the, 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 the medical intervention. And then the other one really is, to some degree, age. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's certain developmental patterns that we sort of know to expect or predict as puppies. For example, you know, it's a really mouthy 13 week old puppy. So, yeah, that's what they do at that age. Right. Like, that's not surprising. Mm -hmm. uh, if we start to see a, a dog of, let's say, 10 months old, 14 months old, who, you know, quote unquote, all of a sudden isn't listening very well anymore or is seeming to be really impulsive or any of those sorts of things, we say, yeah, that's kind of what we expect on the early side of adolescence. Mm -hmm. So there are some of those known or expected developmental milestones, if you will, that when I see behavior change around those times, I go, okay, well, let's at least investigate the possibility. You know, let's, let's look at the learning history for this particular animal and see if we can tease things out. And yet once we get beyond you know, two and a half, three, three and a half, and we're getting into that early side of adulthood between there and depending on the size or the breed of dog, you know, I would say seven or eight, you know, we've got a three to five year period of time that should, I don't love that word, but should be pretty stable, right? Mm. There shouldn't be a lot of change that's coming from, from just sort of spontaneous behavior change standpoint, it's I sort of uh, when I'm talking with my clients, I often say that 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 age range between, let's say, three and seven is sort of like the human equivalent of like, I don't know, 25 to, you know, 55 or 60. You are who you are. Yes, you're still learning. Yes, you're still changing based on experiences. But those are more likely to be cumulative. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Or, or acute because of trauma of some sort. You know, there's some sort of especially emotionally salient event that happens. And so, you know, if I get, you know, back to the original question, if I get either an acute change or something that really represents a sizable shift in behavior within a period of life in which we're not expecting curveballs, mm -hmm. 
those are the things for me where I say, hey, we may need to dig a little bit deeper. And whether that's looking at blood work or x-rays or additional diagnostics, looking for things like low thyroid values or, again, urinary tract infections or osteoarthritis, you know, we, we may want to dig a little bit deeper on that. Cool. Yeah. And then what would you say are some of the most common culprits, I guess, for medical issues, you know, contributing to behavior issues? And I think that's important because I, I do think a lot of our listeners and pet owners might not even understand why these medical issues can cause behavior issues. I think I think we even take that for granted sometimes that why like what what are some of these common things and then why does that lead to 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 some of the behavior issues that we see? Yeah, so the some of the some of the more common ones I think we we've, we've we've kind of mentioned at least kind of in almost like a name dropping sort of a way already like osteoarthritis or urinary tract infections or dental pain or hormone hormonal changes, low thyroid values or Cushing's disease or things of that nature. So I, I think there, there's a whole host of them. And, you know, and I think one of the, I think one of the easier ways to think about this intersection between medical and behavior is not necessarily to say, you know, what behavior changes does the medical issue cause? Right. Because I don't think it's necessarily that straightforward. It's more yeah. about if we have anything going on that's creating a level of pain, discomfort, mm -hmm. avoidance behavior, uh, decreased tolerance to stress. You know, even when we think about it, when I talk with my clients, we say, you know, gosh, you know, if you have a headache or mm -hmm. if you twisted your ankle hiking this last weekend and you're experiencing a level of discomfort, are you at 100% or are you feeling a little bit closer to that threshold at which you might respond in, in a less than ideal way, right? And whether that's with aggression in some way, shape or form, whether that's with irritability, whether it manifests more as stress, anxiety, depression on the human side, or whether it's some other manifestation, it's, it's, it's often that it's affecting the threshold or the sensitivity level of the animal more so than saying, hypothyroidism causes this. Right. And I think it's so much easier to sort of cast a wide net then if we're going into it, not necessarily saying, what does urinary tract infection look like? What mm -hmm. does arthritis pain look like? What does pancreatitis look like? And we're saying, hey, are we seeing anything here that we think is affecting that animal's level of resilience or tolerance? And then we can look at the clinical signs. And this is one of the places where the veterinary training, I think, really steps into the into the spotlight to not necessarily just say this looks like this. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's one of the common misconceptions is, is people might look at some like a description for, let's say, hypothyroidism. And we may say, OK, those dogs are lethargic. Wait a minute. My dog's lethargic. I think my dog's hypothyroid. Right. Well, well there's 942 things that can cause lethargy. Right. Right. You know, we, we can't necessarily make that assumption. And so the veterinary training or the medical approach to that is really to say, OK, so we've got a dog who's lethargic. And what else? Are we seeing changes in weight? Are we seeing changes in appetite? Are we seeing changes in urination and defecation habits? Are we seeing changes in exercise tolerance or heat seeking or cold seeking behaviors? Because if this is a dog who's truly, let's say, hypothyroid, generally speaking, we're going to see a certain cluster of things that go together. And so it's really tempting to be sort of the, you know, the, the armchair quarterback, so to speak, and being like, hey, I think I know what's wrong with my dog. 
And, you know, you may be right. You know, I, I often tell my clients, you know, you know your dog better than anyone, better than the vet, better than your trainer, but you mm-hmm. know your dog the best. And that gives you an opportunity to really relay the factual details that someone else can put together and say, now that means this, especially knowing that a lot of the things that we've been talking about so far aren't necessarily visible on a routine physical exam. Mm hmm. Right. If someone brings to me a dog and says, hey, can you check this dog out to see whether there's a medical cause of behavior? If there's a tooth root abscess, unless it's really, really bad, I'm not going to see it. Mm -hmm. If this is a dog who has pancreatitis, but it's mild or chronic, unless they're really splinting when I when I'm palpating their abdomen, I can't diagnose that without a blood test. If this is a dog that has bladder stones. I might be really good at abdominal palpation, but unless that stone is, you know, the size of a golf ball, I'm not going to feel it. Mm-hmm. So, so I think there's, there's, you know, yes, it's a great place to start in terms of getting that physical exam. And what I want both veterinarians and clients and trainers and behavior consultants to remember is that that's a starting point. And if we have a strong index of suspicion that there may be something here medically relevant for that case, it almost always requires more workup beyond the physical exam to really say whether or not something either is a factor here by confirming it or no, we can't identify something here that seems relevant for that dog's behavior patterns. Yeah. If we back up for a second. So if someone comes to, let's say they come to a trainer and a trainer says, you know, I would like for your dog to get a medical workup, right? Because for whatever reason they suspect it, or they always ask everyone to do that. So usually you're going to get pointed towards a better, uh, a veterinarian. And usually it's going to be your primary veterinarian. So let's start there first before, before we get into the 150 of you that are veterinarian uh, behaviorist um, or veterinary behaviorist. But when you go, like, I think one, one of the things that I, I think a lot of pet owners feel uncomfortable or unsure of what to say, what to ask for, because it's complicated. So sort of based on what we've already spoke about, we're looking for things that might be like, again, maybe like chronic pain, or there's like might be hormonal things, or there could be, you know, things that we can't see, like in their, you know, dental. So things things that could cause discomfort for them to be uncomfortable, uh, or in the case of hormones, I guess this, you know, could make them feel really irritated and those types of things. So I guess it seems like a broad exercise. <laughs> so, yes. so if someone going to their veterinarian, I think one of the things we hear back sometimes like, yeah, I asked my veterinarian, they looked at him and they said, yep, looks good. And I think it's that physical exam. And that, that that's not a, a knock on the veterinarian. I think they're, I think they're probably just looking, yep. I mean, they look okay to me, but like, do people have to go in with more specific questions or like, what's the best way to sort of open that conversation, I guess? Yeah, the, I, that's uh, the way that you asked that question, Brian, really, I think, really allows us to hone in on something very specific, because if I'm a veterinarian and you present me with an animal, you know, and I'm sort of just speaking in general terms, and I don't have any history about any of the observable behavior patterns over the last hour, day, week, month, year, all I can deal with is what I'm seeing in front of me. And so if that animal is not overtly limping, for example, which many of them will not do during the initial 20 minutes of an exam, Mm -hmm. if they're not actively vomiting, you know, in the process of the exam, I wouldn't know if they vomited 20 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's not, you know, let's say, you know, if they're not 
urinating seven times over the course of 20 minutes, I'm not going to know that frequent urination is a concern. So, so much of that information that would allow me to say, hey, wait a minute, this dog is presenting in a way that makes me really need to evaluate the lower urinary tract. Or, you know, maybe it's urinating a bit more, but man, the volume of urine is huge. So now my brain says I'm looking for things that may affect concentrating ability, which might be liver, it might be kidney, it might be diabetes, it might be some of these other patterns. So the history details really drive the process of diagnostic testing. Because if we don't have something that, that allows us to localize to a body system or a collection of patterns, then it leaves us as veterinarians saying, you know, to, to a client even to say, I, you know, I understand you want to rule out behavior and we can start running tests, but I don't really have any sort of a roadmap of where to start, mm-hmm. which means then we often run, let's say, the standard you know, complete blood count, chemistry profile, thyroid test, and a urinalysis, which is an awesome sort of baseline screening, but it's not going to catch everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the number of times where I've been talking, let's say with a veterinarian who has presented an animal, just like I described, and they were like, yeah, I gave it a clean bill of health and I didn't know any better. And then I come back, it could be an hour later or a week later and say, Hey, I chatted with the trainer who's been working with them, or I did a more thorough history with the owner. And now I've identified these nine details. The vet often says, Oh, well, if I had known that, we would have handled that situation completely. The knowledge is often there, but unless it's presented, we're never going to go anywhere. And so that to me comes back to, you know, whether it's the the, the pet owner or whether it is, you know, the, the, the trainer or the behavior consultant basically saying, these are my observations. This is what I've seen, not what do I think is going on. What have I seen? What have I observed? What have I smelled? What have I cleaned up in the middle of the night? What what is the what is the data point that we can relay? That's what we need to be able to pass off to the veterinarian. And I think from the trainer or behavior consultant role, that's an area where we are exceptionally skilled in terms of observation mm-hmm. and teasing out, you know, let's say labels from true observable data points. Right. And, and doing that data collection or journaling or, you know, amassing this sort of collection of this is what is reported to me. And perhaps even saying this is what was reported to me. And this animal is not responding as I would predict to the training exercises that would normally, you know, help or resolve this if this was a purely training or learning issue. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that comes to mind for you as a veterinarian mm-hmm. thinking about all of these details? Is there anything that comes to mind for you that we should be looking for to really tease out sort of where this roadblock or this obstacle happens to be? And I think it presents an, a, a wonderful opportunity for collaboration. It mm-hmm. opens that door for the veterinarian to be able to say, oh, cool, let me take a look versus the perception of, you know, getting a 19 page behavior mod summary, right? Yeah, you know, with with 432 data points, and the vet's like, I honestly don't even know what this terminology means. I don't know where to put this information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know, a bullet point list of here's what I saw, here's what I did, here's why I'm sending them to you. Mm-hmm. If you can get that down to a page or less bullet pointed, now we've got something that mm, I would argue most veterinarians or veterinary teams are at least going to be able to scan and say, hey, we, we can we can tease this out and this is meaningful. 
and we can run with that. But we got to be able to give that information in a way that's digestible. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder even for, because certainly not every dog owner is going to be working with a trainer already when they go to the vet. Some will, but some won't. And I do love the fact that you highlighted, because I think it holds true even on the, the behavior and training side too, is that sometimes what would be a very important, relevant detail to us might seem totally inconsequential and not at all important to an owner. So I wonder if it's one of those things where like, if you're going into your veterinarian as a pet owner and sometimes you just, you know, you walk into that 20 minute appointment and depending how much your dog likes the vet, there's a whole lot of other concerns on your mind too. And it's really hard to keep everything straight and remember everything you wanted to say. So it's probably a really great idea to jot down. And to your point, Chris, it sounds like some of the things that are going to be especially relevant and helpful to a vet. What if any changes have there been in like eating and drinking habits, inactivity level, what behavior changes or sort of tolerance level have I seen? And over the course of the day, and over the course of the last few weeks and months. And I feel like if I went in as a, an, a just a, a dog owner with like my bullet pointed list of stuff that I had kind of gone through myself in a little bit of a systematic way, we're probably be, we're probably a lot more likely to be successful in communicating that information mm-hmm. to the vet. Yeah, absolutely. And I love when I'm, when I'm working with clients, even as a veterinary behaviorist where, you know, we get to the sort of the end of the history taking and I'll say, you know, hey, is there anything else that you want me to be aware of? And it absolutely makes me just glow when a client says, hold on, let me check my list. I'm like, <laughs> yes, you have a yep. list. You're paying yep. attention. You're you're invested in this process. You're you're thinking about this. You're trying to get the most return on the time and the investment and all of that stuff versus sort of walking in and kind of handing over the responsibility and saying, help me figure this out. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm happy to do that too, but it's so much easier when we get that information to then know where to go next. Mm-hmm. And especially because, as you said, I mean, they know their animal better than anyone else. You know, they yes. really do. Mm-hmm. So they're like the, you know, as a, as a dog owner, as a pet owner, you are absolutely the best source of information and and input mm-hmm. on that. So, yeah. And I also think too, it's like, I think a lot of owners and even trainers sometimes feel like they're walking on eggshells a little bit because you don't want to walk in like diagnosing stuff or saying like coming in, say, I want you to run these three specific tests. Right. Like, so I know as a trainer, we want to avoid that. And I, I feel like over the years, sort of the way to think about it is it's almost like, I think if there's trainers listening right now and, and for the pet owners, I think the goal is like, you're almost like a detective in terms of getting the facts, right? So it's almost like, it's almost like you're the, the PI or the private investigator or like the detective where like you're, you have these facts of what happened and then you sort of hand that over to the the DA's office almost, where, <laughs> where then they decide what they're going to charge and what they're going to do. So if you kind of go into it as like a detective, here are the things that I'm observing and seeing that are out of, out of the ordinary if we stay in that sort of realm, then I think we're going to be okay. And it's going to be a much better conversation than walking in and saying, this is first degree murder and, you know, or whatever, yeah. that, you know. And, you that, know. <laughs> and that's how we word things to, to our training team as well, is if you can observe it, 
So like see, smell, I don't know what taste would be, but <laughs> or, you know, know, that one gets a little wonky sometimes, but sure, let's go with it. <laughs> that's stuff that you should share. And I, I think that's important too, because it avoids us without veterinary expertise from getting hung up on this certain cluster of things we're seeing to the point where we put blinders on yeah. to other things, right? When we yes. kind of self-diagnose, then we start to ignore all these other things that are happening too. So if we stick to what's observable, we let the veterinary team do the diagnosing piece where possible. Yes. And that is such an such an incredible way to think about. It. I love the the you know, the PI to DA sort of <laughs> analogy within that. I, I, love, I haven't heard that. That's amazing. Uh, but I think it's it's really relevant because you know I think about something like you know two examples come to mind as one that I hear a lot even as a vet behaviorist. One would be you know somebody said I should have my dog checked for low thyroid values. Mm-hmm. And it's like immediately the client is already coming in with a preconceived sort of track record. And either we have to then sort of answer that question in order to satisfy the the curiosity of the client, which might mean burning through financial resources that might have been better allocated somewhere else if we had been more open from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Or we then have to spend the time saying, well, actually, you know, thyroid should look like this. And so I I don't want to throw your trainer or behavior consultant under the bus, but that's not exactly right and now we've got the client who's kind of stuck going well who do i who do i trust and and so you know i i I do think that we can get in get into some stickier situations than what's ever needed so i think you know the 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 hypothyroidism piece is one the other is going in to say hey should you ask your dog about prozac for example Mm. you know and giving not only from a medical diagnosis but you know and this could take our conversation in a totally different direction but it's kind of kind of the same idea yeah. Mm-hmm. Of painting a very specific picture, which then flavors the conversation that then needs to happen in order mm-hmm. for the client to feel like that appointment was worthwhile. And in many cases, at least in my experience, that's not the conversation that we necessarily would have been best served by having in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that for me is again more about here's what I've observed. Here are the things that I, you know, that I would love to hear your vet's feedback on based on on their observations, at least as that starting point. And, you know, and quite honestly, is every vet as equally equipped in this area? Of course not. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that's going to be true of everything, right? So, you know, if you've got, you know, I, I know some of my, my clients here in Portland, for example, and, and back in Minneapolis when I used to practice there as well, they would say, oh, well, that sounds like a dental issue. Cool. I got my dental guy. Oh, that sounds like more like a skin issue. Cool. I got that. I got the vet for that. Oh, we're not right. talking about herb therapy or complimentary stuff. Awesome. I'm going to head over to, you know. And so you know, it, it's not uncommon to have to have a team-based approach. And sometimes you're lucky enough to have that entire team in one building, but oftentimes we're not. Right. And so you know, it may be a matter of, of, again, being open to that collaboration, not only between the trainer and behavior consultant and the client, but then also the vet or the expanded vet team to then say, hey, who's best suited to answer this question? Yeah. And, and what do we do next? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think one of the other ones, too, because we've talked about some of the the typical medical stuff like the, you know, if the gate's slightly off or they're moving a little funny or they, you know, again, the, uh, this other stuff that's going on. But what about things like 
you know, on, on sort of the more mental health side, you know, so like anxiety, is that a medical condition, right? Cause I feel like, I feel like that gets stuck in this weird in between things sometimes. And that kind of came up as I was writing down questions, because even for me, who, you know, for us, we've been doing this, you know, almost 15 years or, or, or yeah, 13, 14 years now. And even for me, like, I'm like, yeah, that's sort of interesting. Cause usually if I see anxiety, it's going to be like, you're going to talk to your vet behaviorist, but not everyone around has a vet behavior. So I was kind of curious on your thought, like things that are like anxiety or things that we would just consider mental health potential issues for a dog. Is that something that can be, should be looked at as medical as well? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah. Depends on who you ask. Right. So it, right. It, I, I think the tricky thing there is, is sometimes yes, sometimes no. Right. So if you define anxiety as an apprehensive anticipation of threat, that's an emotional response to you know a particular set of circumstances. So on one hand, we could say, well, yes, that's medical because it may manifest as changes in health, mm-hmm. or it may be more likely when, let's say, nutritional needs aren't being met, or there's other sources of inflammation or things like that. So there's this this really profound interplay between the two. And yet I don't think that it's nearly as simple as saying your dog has a fractured femur. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's yeah. a medical issue, right? We're not, you know, I, we, we can't talk our way through that one necessarily and hope that it gets better. So right. but I think that there's, you know, there, there's multiple ways of looking at it. And that's, that's one of the reasons I think I love this, this mindset of collaboration and basically saying, mm-hmm. okay, if we're dealing with a, a mental health issue, Yes, let's look for, let's try to identify, let's try to address any medical factors that may be impacting, that may be magnifying those patterns. And what is the emotional or behavioral skill set that we want to onboard for that animal to better equip them for navigating those stressors, whether it's an acute, definable stressor that we're talking about in terms of fear-based behaviors or whether it's more of this apprehensive anticipation of threat or worry or generalized anxiety because the animal doesn't have a sense of predictability or a feeling of being able to control anything that happens around them, right? Those are, those are skill sets that we can onboard from a learning perspective without touching the medical piece, mm-hmm. understanding that if there is an underlying medical issue, whether that's neurochemical imbalance, whether mm-hmm. that is the psychological impact of previous trauma, whether that is an imbalance in terms of, you know, even we talk about some of the hormonal issues like Cushing's disease, for example, sort of an overproduction of steroid hormones within the body, that throws that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis off base, which often shows up as anxiety or irritability or hyperarousal or exaggerated appetite or, you know, things like things like that. And so I think it's it's really understanding that the the intersection between those is the important thing. And, and in some ways, it's like it reminds me of, of the conversations that I have with people when I'm when I when I used to get to travel on planes, which was amazing. And I miss that. I look forward to doing that again someday. <laughs> but, you know, I would have these conversations and people would often say, well, OK, so but really tell me the truth. Is it the pet or the owner? Mm-hmm. You know, like, where is the true problem? And the answer is, <laughs> like, who, who do you want me to throw into the bus, right? Like, the blame game is not helpful here. But it's kind of the same idea, right? It's the intersection, right? It's like, well, what is the owner showing up with? What is the animal showing up with? How are they communicating with one another? And what can we actually modify? 
I think about that medical behavioral intersection in much the same way. They're both relevant. And the Mm -hmm. intersection between the two really determines sort of what opportunities we have for intervention. Where is the greatest flexibility within that individual animal or learner going to show up? And that requires that investigation to determine just as it does when we're doing a behavioral assessment, trying to figure out, you know, quote unquote, is it the owner of the dog? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, the that's really helpful. And I think it, you know, if we look at this sort of as like from an owner perspective, and we talk about this sometime with clients is just being prepared to say, cause it's so hard to know sometimes what, where the balance lies in terms of, you know, how much of this is potential medical and health issues and how much of this is totally within the scope of learning and behavior change. And, and obviously those interact a ton, but you know, it is being prepared to say sometimes, and it's not a cop out, it's based on experience. And if people are working really hard and doing doing the right thing, sometimes it's okay to just say, it shouldn't be this hard Yes, for mm-hmm. you to create this behavior change that you're looking for. If it's, if it's that hard, it's telling us something about the animal's internal state, right? And them not for one reason or another being receptive to learning and behavior change through behavior modification methods. Mm -hmm. So if you feel like you're working hard and doing all the right things and it's, you're just, you are not getting traction, just know it really, (sighs) animals are so good at learning and so much, I think more open to behavior change sometimes than we are. Mm -hmm. And if you're in such a hard time getting traction, like it shouldn't be that hard. So that is maybe a time to consult your vet or a veterinary behaviorist Mm -hmm. for help. Yeah. And I love that. It's the, what you said too, about the, the flexibility of most animal learners. You know, I think there's, there's a lot that we could learn if we opened ourselves up to it, (laughs) to basically saying, Hey, can I just respond to the current contingencies around me and, you know, and do the best I can with the information I have versus Mm -hmm. being so rigidly attached to behavior patterns or belief systems or any of the other things Mm -hmm. that we might sort of cognitively you know get rooted in and and you know and yet I, I totally agree that you know when we think about how adaptable most dogs are when we think about our success rates with placement with dogs through shelters or placement organizations right one to three weeks the vast majority of animals they sort of settle into where they are now i mean for better or for worse like sometimes that really hurts my heart to know that my dog would probably be fine in three weeks you know if he went somewhere else like they're he would adapt, right? Like it's in his best interest to go with the flow, to adapt to those current circumstances. And so if we're not getting that responsiveness, if we're not seeing even a moderate level of flexibility, then the question shifts to, yeah, where what's the obstacle? What's the roadblock? Mm-hmm. Do we need a different training method, you know, or a mm-hmm. different approach or a different reinforcer or a different set of antecedent conditions? Sure. Look at all of those things and... Yeah. If you've looked at a very similar problem for the last 42 dogs that have come into your facility and you've been successful with 41 of them using a relatively similar method, maybe yeah. there's something different about dog 42 that requires us <laughs> to look at a different set of uh, different set of lenses. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's a good segue too into this next question, which is when when we should be reaching out to veterinary behaviorists when we're in, in this medical territory. So I think one is, I think that's a great way. It, it, again, if, if you're working with someone good and, and that behavior change is hard, a lot harder than it should be, that's probably an indication that you should, 
you know, in, in conjunction with your trainer or behavior consultant, I think to reach out to a veterinary behaviorist, because usually that for me, it's like, it's like an intersection between behavior and potentially medical or um, like neurochemical imbalance, any of those things. So like, th- that's one where I feel like we, we want to reach out to a veterinary behaviorist, but then sort of on the other side where maybe things aren't really on the, I'm using mental health. I, we don't really use that with dogs, but I feel like maybe we should sometimes because it's basically the same thing. But if, if it's not really in that mental health, like anxiety t- type of situation, it's more maybe into things that might be more hormonal or, you know, uh, structural or any of those things but at what point like should we look at bringing in a veterinary behaviorist and i'll caveat that with i do think there's veterinarians who love behavior work or love doing this sort of stuff and you you can work if you have a primary vet like that you can do we have some that we work with that are just amazing and we can do a ton with the primary veterinarian without having to go to a veterinary behaviorist Mm -hmm. but then there are times where even if it is on that medical side we want an owner to, to work with a veterinary behaviorist so before i tell you reasons why we do that. Like what, like where, where do you feel like it's like really like that's the like, so really, is it the owner? (laughs) When should we be doing this? Yeah. And, um, but like what sort of like in your guys's wheelhouse, because I feel like sometimes when, when we really need help with like detective work or we've really, really stuck and don't really know what's going on. That for me is like, when I feel like we have a puzzle to figure out and the pieces don't look normal to me, that's usually when I'm like, okay, we really need to bring in someone who understands behavior and the medical side to help us sort of troubleshoot this. So mm-hmm. that's that's how I kind of look at it. I know that's oversimplified, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think there's a lot within what you just said about, you know, kind of the, the different skill sets that are there. And something that I I think is a really important part of this conversation is when I think about these different roles, whether we're talking about a general practice veterinarian, a general practice, you know, general uh, practicing veterinarian with a special interest in behavior, potentially advanced training as well, and then looking at a veterinary behaviorist, and we've got the owner, and we've got the trainer, the behavior consultants, the you know, we've got all of these individuals. I I know that my my opinion here is not the universal one in that. I don't necessarily say, oh, the vet behaviorist is the top of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, that's not my approach. My, the way I tend to look at this is each one of these roles has a unique skill set. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have a toolbox. We all have, and depending on our level of experience, training, education, credentialing, the, the toolbox gets bigger, right? One of the things that, that I, I really appreciate about the veterinary behaviorist role is that if we've done our job well, we've got a pretty sizable skill set on the veterinary side first, mm-hmm. right? Because that's that's what we we had to be practicing as veterinarians. So we have that skill set, that diagnostic mind that you truly need to get from an extensive medical education. You can read medical textbooks and you can have a lot of information about medical diagnoses and treatment plans. But one of the biggest takeaways from medical or veterinary school is the diagnostic process. How do you take those data points and how do you actually put them together in a meaningful way? And, mm-hmm. and so that, that to me is a really strong differentiator between someone who's coming at this from the training and behavior side, who may be amazingly well at sort of picking apart antecedent, antecedent conditions and identifying behavior and creating meaningful consequences. That's a skill set that we don't learn in veterinary school. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So they're, 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 they're a completely unique and in many cases, very separate skill sets. The place where the veterinary behaviorist, in my opinion, really steps in here is that depending on, you know, whether we're coming at it from the medical side saying, hey, I can't tease this out. What do you think? Is this one of those cases that may cross over where we have to be playing sort of on both sides? And what would that look like? Or are we coming at it from the training standpoint saying, hey, we're not making the progress we think we should. You know, I, I need to be able to have a conversation or this animal needs to be able to work with someone who can understand both sides. And so the veterinary behaviorist has a unique role as essentially a translator between these different specialties to be able to say, hey, I can look at each of these, both of these, all of these. And then, you know, kind of start to direct things a bit more of saying, hey, no, I think this is something based on X, Y and Z that we can approach from a diagnostic standpoint, or here is the opportunity for medication based on A, B, and C parameters that we've identified within training protocols, or, you know, here is where we can really, um, you know, shore up our training plan a little bit. If we just thought about this a slightly different way, maybe rather than thinking about it just as an operant sequence, we're pulling in more the concept of mental health and coping skills. You know, how, how do we sort of reframe that? And, and for me, that's really where I feel like, like the veterinary behavior team has the potential to shine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not just as a prescriber of meds. Right. Right. Which well, yeah, I'm I, happy to yeah. do, but like, that's, <laughs> uh, but I agree that's, with you. No, and I, yeah, I think it's, um, I think we tend toward that. And yeah, it's, it's nice to hear it from you. And maybe if you have additional feedback on this too, but I think what you were saying, Brian, a lot of times what we feel like is if it's a situation where a specialist is required, we're maybe not quite sure what type, (laughs) you know, like, do you need to go see a neurologist? Do you need to go? We tend to default to a veterinary behaviorist because there's that really unique overlap of understanding behavior and potential medical underlying medical causes for that. So that may even be a case where the veterinary behaviorist says you need to go see a neurologist, right? Where you couldn't say that confidently and maybe a primary care vet couldn't say that confidently either necessarily. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is that accurate? I think that's why we tend to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, it is. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's actually one of the things that I love doing the most. And, and I think, you know, when I've had conversations with, with other specialists, whether it's a dermatologist, whether it's a neurologist, whether it's a surgeon, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's really tempting to be like, well, not it. Like, I don't, I don't think this is me, but the cool thing about having that education in both veterinary practice and behavior is that almost all of what gets reported to a veterinarian is a behavior change, right? Right. You know, it's, it's a change in gait. It's a change in appetite. It's a change. These are all observable behavior changes. And so the veterinary behavior team has to understand all of those different things to be able to, to be able to say, Hey, if I'm seeing an appetite change that looks like this, I have to have that entire diagnostic rule out list of what are the training issues, behavior issues, what are the medical issues that might show up that way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I may still say, yeah, this isn't me. And I know who it is. Right. <laughs> right. Which is hugely <laughs> Huge. valuable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like and hugely valuable. I yeah. love those cases. You know, in fact, you know, I, I am I'm doing a collaborative um 
project right now with one of the local veterinary dermatologists here. Her name is Dr. Ashley Bourgeois. And we're working together doing more of a case-based series. Basically, is it behavior or is it derm or is it both? Mm. And looking at some of those patterns, so you've got the cat who's over-grooming, you've got the dog with an acrylic dermatitis, you've got the dog that, you know, scratches themselves, but only in stressful situations. So is that itch? Is it displacement? Is it anxiety? Is it quote-unquote OCD? You know, like, who who is it and why? And the ability to tease apart that case and say, because of X, Y, and Z, not it. <laughs> you know that's right. something we you know we've got you know evidence of blah 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 mm-hmm. we're going to send you to dr bourgeois and she's going to take care of the derm piece or you know yes we have a dog who is responding aggressively to specific handling or being disrupted while lying down but i don't have any other red flags here for resource guarding or space guarding or territoriality wait a minute you know let's check that dog's cruciates or their low back or you know, things like that. So we have the ability to look at those patterns and really in, I would say the majority of cases get very specific about where we need to look next to really Mm -hmm. tease it out. And I I love, love, love being able to give clients that level of clarity to then say, here, here you go. And if Mm -hmm. that medical piece doesn't completely address this, you can either come back and we'll help you with the behavior side or we'll be a liaison to get you back to a really qualified training and behavior team right. who can then help you with the coaching aspects of, of moving that behavior process forward. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's great. And I'm kind of curious too, before we get, we're already 50 minutes in. So, um, <laughs> so before, before we start to wrap up though, I do think it would be good for listeners to understand you know, one that a lot of times, especially when it comes to behavior, you know, there might be some stuff that's going to be done on the medical side. There's almost absolutely going to be stuff done on the behavior side, like those parallel tracks that that, that you spoke about. Um, I think that's, you know, that's really common. However, there have been cases where without going into details, but things like, I think it's really important for people to know, like, all of a sudden, like a three-year-old dog starts getting in fights at dog daycare and we find out it's Rocky Mountain spotted fever. It's it's a tick-borne disease. It actually, you know, that got treated and the dog got much better. Or, you know, it could be something where somebody will notice a slight change in the gait that the owner doesn't even know. It's just how they're transferring their weight. It's so subtle, but it's a torn ACL. So the dog has just been in pain and those types of things. So I'm just kind of curious from you guys, like, are there like a case or two where like, I think it's good for people to know that it can be that severe. Like you can really see significant behavior changes and spending money on a trainer would be a waste of money. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times I think it's both, but a f- couple of examples I think would be kind of useful for, I think for people. Yeah. You know, and, and we, we, we come across cases like that. I mean, all the time that are coming to us either from a medical standpoint or from a training standpoint where mm-hmm. we're, where we're, where we've been, feeling like we're spinning our wheels coming back to what you said, Sarah, about it shouldn't be this hard. You know, you you know, there are some of these cases where, um, in fact, you know, I was just working yesterday. This is actually a a cat case. Um, but I was uh, talking to a veterinarian in California who, you know, was like, Hey, we've got this young kitten, you know, who is displaying more of a, a pica behavior. So it's ingesting fabric items. And, you know, we've been approaching it from the, uh, from the nutritional standpoint, yeah, we're making some progress. 
we can't find anything else overtly medically wrong. What else do we need to do? And so, you know, in that case, it was a matter of flipping the coin around and saying, well, are we meeting this cat's basic needs? This is a cat who is demonstrating based on, you know, a lot of these other patterns. Once we dug a little deeper, this cat is a chewer. Right. Like what what are we giving this cat appropriately to chew on? Have we met basic needs? Because I'm willing to bet based on X, Y and Z, once we do that, Mm -hmm. we are going to be able to make a huge, a huge advance within that cat's overall you know, behavioral patterns, um, you know, and then some of the other ones, you know, I was working with a, a case, actually, this is a relatively new case for me that had an acute onset behavior change at roughly age four. They saw someone who was helping them on the veterinary side and they did a, a great job and they got about 85% of the, I would estimate 85% of the stuff under control. And there's been this piece that's always been there and they've kind of been managing around it. I looked at the case. I was like, yeah, no, no, there's, there's, there's something there. We got to dig a little bit deeper. And so by making one or two really subtle management changes and then looking at the endocrine panels a little bit differently, we made some adjustments, got treatment started within about three weeks, completely different dog. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, here they, you know, they've been sort of managing for three to four years Mm-hmm. And and now we've got an owner who's ecstatic. She's like, wait a minute. My dog is literally acting like a two-year-old again. Mm-hmm. Here we've been calling him sort of quirky and he's having a bad day. And, you know, yeah. they were really amazing about accommodating for him. And yet he kind of felt cruddy for about four years. Yeah. And, and here we are being able to make a huge difference. So, you know, I, I think it's, you know, those cases do exist. Mm-hmm. You know, right. the vast majority of the ones that come across our plate, I think, are more about the intersection between these disciplines and saying, yeah, here's the medical, here's the behavioral, here's where they connect. Mm-hmm. But in some cases, yeah, it absolutely can be very much one sided. You know, the mm-hmm. example you gave about the dog who's, uh, you know, has been going to daycare for, you know, a year, two years, three years and quote unquote, all of a sudden is getting into conflicts. Mm hmm. That's a classic yeah. example. Pain-related aggression is probably, you know, it, it's, I, I should be careful how I phrase this, but it's almost that until proven otherwise, right? Right. And to to yeah. the point where sometimes we even say, hey, I don't know where this dog is uncomfortable. I can't quite spot it, but we may decide to do some pain-related trials, whether that's with supplements or a variety of pain mm-hmm. medications to say, if we get a clinical response then we've at least confirmed the theory that the dog was uncomfortable and he's feeling better. Now we have to figure out why he was uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one is really from our standpoint as not on the veterinary side is one that seems to be something that, um, again, I think people get sort of shortchanged on even that I think dogs kind of get shortchanged on is that like, mild to moderate level discomfort that Mm -hmm. some of them are so stoic about. And to your point, like depending on the dog, they might be kind of excited at the vet or whatever it is. And they're, they're not like yelping or wincing, but they're just uncomfortable all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and by individual dog. And then there's some breeds that just like would never let you know, unless their leg was dangling like (laughs) out of of its socket that they were uncomfortable. Hello, pit mixes. (laughs) Right. Right. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's one that um, I don't know what the answer is necessarily, but just as a general, I think that's something that probably we 
could all pay more attention to um, mm-hmm. as yes. something that could even just be an underlying factor. Or again, like a, a one more thing that adds to the dog being stressed or irritable or whatever. It it's be. also, it's also one of those things too, where like, it's just such a relief to have a good veterinary behaviorist or veterinarian or a team to work with. I will, I will say that like, you know, someone's been doing this for a long time and, you know, you try to muscle your way through a lot of cases. I think when you're younger and more inexperienced and then the older and more experienced and the more mistakes you make, the more you realize like you you can only do so much and you're going to need people with different experts, you know, with a different expertise. And in your point, Sarah, is like, you know, just the, like that subtle pain, like, I think it's, that's one of the, for any owners out there, like if, if you have a behavior consultant or a vet talking to you about it, even though you don't think you see it, 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 if you have a professional who's like really good at seeing subtle signs of movement changes or um, discomfort. It's just facial expressions facial and expressions. things like that when a dog's moving that you notice. Yeah. We yeah. just, you know, we have to, you know, we have to listen to it and really think about yourself. And you brought this up, Chris, too. Like, you know, if you, if you twist at your ankle or, you know, I, I went through a phase where I had a fractured t7 or fractured sternum like it makes you grumpy man like and you try to you try not to let it get to you but you can't really help it and i think i I do think that's like an important point and if everyone can keep an open mind that if your vet or trainer or behavior consultant you know mentions like hey they look a little uncomfortable a little uncomfortable could mean a lot of pain and i think that's something we just have to be and sometimes a little bit of pain can cause a lot of problems too like over time yeah chronic low level pain and that kind of circles back nicely too i think to again we can only expect so much out of a quick general visit Mm -hmm. in terms of what a vet can detect so if you're coming in saying look i think my dog's uncomfortable again having that list of He's not as active as he used to be. He has, he's really slow to get up from laying down in the morning and in the evening. He's like stress panting more after he does things. He's not he eating all of his meals. To. Yeah. Having stuff like that there coupled with the, look, I know my dog. I really think he's just, he's uncomfortable. Like yes. what could we try for this? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you yes. think would be good for this? Coming in with that puts the vet in a much better position to help you. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that I want to add to that too is, and this is, we, 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 we look at this always from the, the, the behavior side, but it's relevant for veterinary too. Like if you come into your vet and saying, just like you said, Sarah, here are the five things that I've observed. Not only does that help to direct the diagnostic process and the treatment process, those become the parameters that we're monitoring to figure out whether or not we're making a difference. Yeah, and it's really you know, and and I see this happening in a lot of different different areas where is someone might come into the veterinary with a very general, eh, he just seems off, mm-hmm. and the veterinarian because of whatever limitations are present for them, they say, well, you know, we can try a Rimadil trial or we can try some, and then we ask the question, is he better? And the owner's mm-hmm. like, I don't really know, I can't tell. Well, if right. we didn't if we didn't have any specific observations to look at on the front side. Mm-hmm. how the heck are we even going to know whether or not it made a difference? So right. that specificity of observations is so relevant throughout the process to be able mm-hmm. to document. It's not, you know, it's, it's not just understanding where we go next. It's, did we actually make a difference? You know, even if we've confirmed pain, for example, 
Maybe an anti-inflammatory is the route. Maybe in some cases, maybe, you know, a steroidal approach is appropriate for a short term. Maybe mm -hmm. it's more of an opioid. Maybe it's something like gabapentin. Maybe we actually need to dive in and resolve the source of pain. Wouldn't that be a novel concept? Let's, you know, actually treat the <laughs> issues to get to the point, yeah. you know, what, what's the right approach? But we yeah. got to have those parameters to know, again, are we making a difference? Just like we would in our behavior plans. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the other part too, that just learned from mistakes over the years, which is, you know, I remember with Buster, who's no longer with us, like it took us three, three veterans, and this isn't a poo poo on any veterinarians. Again, everyone has different expertise, but I think the thing I want to make clear to people is let's say you think your dog is uncomfortable and in pain and they go into their vet appointment and they're bouncing because they love to see people and people are like, no, he looks fine. He looks good. I can poke him. He looks good. They are doing their job and they're doing that. But if you really feel like, you know, this isn't it, and they're not really taking that seriously. That's where you might want to reach out to a vet behaviors or get a second opinion. Yep. I, I do think, again, it's not, it's not to, to trash on any, anyone because people can miss stuff. Everyone, you know, even you might we have people come to see us for training. We're not the right fit for them either. So, but like, if you feel like someone is not taking you, your concerns seriously, mm -hmm. it's okay to get a second opinion or, you know, to, to do that. I yeah. think that's the. I want to make sure that point gets across too. I agree. I, you know, one of the things that I learned very on in my, in my veterinary career, you know, I, I, I graduated from vet school in 2002. So I've, you know, that was, you know, gosh, 18 years ago, graduating and, and practicing as a veterinarian. One of the things that I remember was, gosh, it was um, some friends and I, we met up for, for, for dinner and drinks probably around Christmas time. So we graduated in, I don't know, May, June. So this is six to seven months in after a four-year period of education. And I remember us all sitting around the table just being like, having this like exasperated look on our face. And, and we were all like, does anybody else feel like you have a clue what you're doing yet? Like, <laughs> do, do you feel like you know what's going on? And, and we were sort of like making the estimates like, well, you know, 60% of the time I come out of, out of a room feeling confident or 80%. It's like, well, if it's a puppy, I'm pretty good. But I mean, right. you know, and I always, I always go back to that because it's, you know, we put so many expectations on, you know, whether it's that 20 minute appointment or the level of experience. And you know what? It's all over the map. You know, it really mm -hmm. is. And, and, I, and, and as you said, Brian, the goal is not to throw anybody under the bus. I'm not saying, oh, no. you should or should not see this particular veterinarian. It's, it's really just being honest that not every individual is equally skilled, qualified or interested in mm -hmm. addressing the issue from a variety of angles. You know, if someone yeah. really wants to talk to me about, you know, the different options for, you know, supplements for anti-inflammatory effects on, you know, on the spine, I'll be like, I no, I don't want to talk <laughs> about that. That's not my thing. Like, I know it's right. important. And here's your person for that. Right. Right. And, yeah. and, and having that ability to, yeah, again, without throwing anybody under the bus, being able to say either not it and. Or mm -hmm. to give my clients the impression too, you know, we, it's one of the things I'm grateful with having three other doctors on our team at the animal behavior clinic is we meet up for rounds every Monday. And if we ever have a case almost weekly where we're like, <laughs> Hey, what do you guys think about this? Or let me mm -hmm. pop up this video before I tell you more, what do you see? Mm -hmm. And, right. you know, we're constantly bouncing those ideas around and literally every single case, somebody will say something that we're like, wow, I I would not have thought about it that way. And that mm -hmm. completely opens the door to a completely different understanding. Let's, yeah. let's roll with that. Let's see where that takes us. 
And so having that openness, the, the confidence in knowing what I know and the comfort in knowing there's so much more that I don't. Mm-hmm. Right. That comes yeah. with experience and, and trust in the process and surrounding yourself with individuals who are really, really good at what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say from a pet owner perspective for someone listening, you know, there's things we can do to make sure that the professional we're seeing knows that we're very open to that as well. Right. Like, I Mm -hmm. think there's probably things you can come in and say, Hey, look, I'm seeing, I'm observing this. What do you think? Is there any here that thing here that's telling you that I should go see a specialist? Is there anything that, you know, you Mm -hmm. think we should try to just let them know? Cause you know, depending where someone's at in their professional career, they may be amazing what they do, but they may still be in that phase of saying, oh no, like if I tell this person that I don't know what to do or that I have to escalate to like a a specialist or to, you know, another more senior vet in my practice, they're going to think like, holy hell, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And a lot of times for me, if I hear that, I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Like, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what I want to hear is because nobody knows everything. And also too, like, I do think, I do think, and even when you maybe get a second opinion or see a specialist, like keep that, if if you're going to stick with that primary vet, make sure you let them know what was found. Cause what I found is there like every veterinarian is, is interested in like, Oh, you did find something. Cause they're going to put that in their memory bank for later. Right. And if they aren't interested in it, then that's probably not a good sign, but I don't think I've ever seen that. But yeah, I mean, any of that information you get, you should, you know, make make sure that gets relayed back because it could be new information for them as well. It could help them with the next dog. Absolutely. And yeah, and that openness of, you know, being able to communicate that as, as you know, both of, you know, communication is everything. Yeah. And the difference between walking into, let's say if I'm a pet owner, I'm walking into an appointment sort of saying, you know, you better get this right or I'm going <laughs> to walk versus <laughs> I'm open to the fact that you might not know everything. And if you feel that we should partner with someone else, I'm open to that. Like they're kind of the same thing, right? Either you know what you're doing or I'm leaving, <laughs> but they're totally different. Right. Yep. Totally different. And it's all, it's all the nuance. Right. So like I, I, especially right now, and, you know, just thinking about where we are as a veterinary profession, I I feel like I I need, you know, we're, we're, we're having this conversation very much still in the middle of the pandemic and the veterinary profession is struggling right now. We're, we, you know, and, and I know the training and behavior fields we're in, we're all struggling in different ways, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Everything we've been talking about right now has been relevant to the fact that veterinary teams need the information from clients that needs to be there. And we are now doing these exams and talking to owners over Zoom, and we don't actually get as much information. We're getting different information. And so even if you're working with the vet who's you know always been your go-to for 20 years, they are now having to do their job with a different set of inputs. Mm-hmm. They are inherently less efficient because this isn't the way we've been practicing for years. There's, you know, there are wait times. There are, there's just all of this nuance. So, you know, one of the last things that I would just advocate for is, you know, whether we're talking about routine care or whether we're talking the need to really dive in on some of these details, just know that we're doing the best we can. Be kind, you know, be, be, be as gracious as you can, knowing that if you're in the middle of something, you're stressed too, and we get that and we understand. And mm-hmm. just yeah. just know that we're we're doing the best we can. 
Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm going to drive that point home because as someone who's not a veterinarian, I will say like the, the jobs that veterinarians have to do are so emotionally tough. Like I I just, and we get a glimpse into it because we deal with behavior stuff. We work with a lot of veterinarians. So we, we have much more of a glimpse into this. We still don't fully understand. Um, Becoming a veterinarian is certainly not a get-rich-quick scheme. No, it's absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> Emotionally uh, or financially, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really yeah. hard. It's yeah. really hard, and like, let's just you know be frank about it. I mean, the 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 suicide rate with veterinarians is through the frigging roof, and it's like yeah. really unfortunate that we have these amazing people who are trying to help dogs and their owners and. And so I think it's something to keep in mind and knowing that like, I, and every veterinarian knows that when you come in, it, it's an emotional thing, especially if your pet is sick and all those things, but just do your best to not direct that towards your yeah. veterinarian because um, they, yeah. they get it a lot. And I, so I want to make sure that's a really good point. Yeah. I'm glad you emphasize that. I yeah. think, yeah, if we, if we frame a lot of this conversation and some of the feedback, a lot of, a lot of it's on helping, how do we best help our vets tap into all that amazing knowledge that they have, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. how can we be better clients mm-hmm. and, and patients to get the best care for our animals? Yeah. You know, it's, it's being supportive of veterinarians and your animal at the same time to get the most out of yeah. that relationship. Absolutely. Completely cool. agreed. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Anything else you want to add to that before we do some plugging for you? No, I think that's I guess such an amazing conversation, right? We, I mean, we literally could be talking about this for hours and hours. And I love the fact that we've got some really tangible take homes about observable things that we can look for and ways to approach the conversation and how do we collaborate and how do we show up, you know, as you just said, Sarah, with that goal of, of collaborating for the purpose of helping the animal in front of us and what what might that look like when we're all sort of linking arms and looking at that collaboratively versus mm-hmm. something different. Right. <laughs> cool. Well, so, so that's great. And then the, uh, j- just so everyone knows, there's really, I think two different ways that people can learn more from you. So one way is you lecture and do education stuff all over the country and the world. So one is I want to let people know how they can best follow you. So in case you have events and they want to take part, because I highly recommend that. And also, I think because we're in the pandemic, I think in uh, Oregon, you're allowed to do virtual consults right now. So if people are looking for a veterinary behaviorist um, because of the pandemic and the limitations, it's actually creating some more opportunities. So I want to make sure people know those two things and anything else that you want them to know. <laughs> yeah, those are the great, great plugs. I appreciate that, Brian. Uh, so yeah, so if, if people are looking for sort of more, you know, direct access content, let's say podcasts like this one, or, you know, short video snippets or things like that, or articles that I've written, I, I, I do try to keep uh, my personal website, which is drpockle.com, very creatively named, D-R-P-A-C-H-E-L, drpockle.com. Uh, if you go on to the media page there, you can toggle through articles, podcasts, videos, things of that nature, and, and look for additional content. Um, there's also a, a calendar of events on there, too, which I try to keep up. It's Man, I tell you, these last three months with everything sort of pivoting from, you know, dates are changing and it's virtual, it's live, it's, hold on, here's a new webinar. Like, I, I'm trying <laughs> to keep up to date on that. Uh, but that's another place to, to look for additional content and to see where I'm likely to be next. 
And yeah, just looking for additional information. You can find all of that there. And then you're absolutely right. Yeah, we've got four clinicians here at the Animal Behavior Clinic. And whether we are collaborating direct to veterinarians to assist them in in their their journey to understand this intersection between medical and behavior, or whether it's working with clients directly. Uh, yeah, we've got some unique opportunities with the pandemic. It's a constantly evolving changing landscape right now. So I would say if, if, if clients are interested or if pet owners are interested in, in learning more about sort of how we may be able to assist, I would say reach out to my my office, uh, the Animal Behavior Animal Behavior Clinic in Portland, uh, reach out to the office directly and we can walk them through what service offerings are appropriate for what they're looking for. Uh, and my awesome. team would be more than happy to, to walk them through that and, and to learn a little bit more about what they're what they're in need of help with. And that's uh, animalbehaviorclinic.net, right? That is correct. Yeah, that's that's awesome, Brian. Yeah, and we try to keep that that up to speed again as far as what we're what we're doing and how we're doing it. Um, any sort of more urgent things, they can also check us out on Facebook as well for the practice page. Uh, again, as as we've got some information there about virtual consults and these vet to vet consults. There's some video clips that I've recorded there, so lots of places to to find us there and Ooh. and quite honestly for, for the trainers and behavior consultants who are listening to this i absolutely love connecting with people on an individual level if you you know if, if we're not already connected through facebook or instagram uh, and and you want to connect please do so my only request is that rand rather than getting a random friend request from someone i don't know send me a message i would much rather love to hear from you introduce yourself I'm happy to connect with you in that way. The conversations are everything as far as I'm concerned. So don't be a stranger. Would love to meet you. Cool. So I'll get all those links in the notes as well, including the, the Facebook link. And then the last question is a question for every guest. Uh, does not have to be related to the topic we just spoke about. But based on all of your experience and everything that you've learned, if you could pass along one piece of advice for pet owners, mm. what would it be? Oh my gosh. You can take your time. Right? It, there's so many lists. I I think the thing that I that I come back to that speaks in so many different directions is is really just bringing it back to listening to your dog. Listen to your dog. Yeah, and, and what I mean by that is there's a conversation that's happening every mm -hmm. moment of every single day and whether we're talking about these medical issues and observing these behavior patterns or whether it's even figuring out by watching body language, it is a language, right? I, when I say listen to your dog, I mean watch, I mean listen, I mean feel. Uh, listen to that communication that's happening and advocate for the areas that are less than that you would like to be better. Whether that's health, whether that's emotional wellness, wh whatever that happens to be, there's so many opportunities. And, and yeah, listen, and, you know, do the best you can. Nobody's going to get this right. There is no right. There is no perfect. Um, but but doing the best we can to improve that relationship is is such an incredible opportunity that I'm, I'm grateful that we we get the opportunity to do uh, with with our own with our own pets, and then also we get the opportunity to support our clients and, and helping them to to navigate that conversation more effectively. Awesome. Well, that was yeah, that was great. Yeah, amazing conversation. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be using that with our clients who are concerned about this stuff, or we might be concerned about it for for their dog. What's nice about these conversations is it allows us to give that detail and have these nuanced conversations 
without you doing it in a paid session. Yes. <laughs> so we can get more into the troubleshooting, right? Because, but the context of all this is really important. So for you to take the time to, to come out uh, and do this uh, for everyone, we just really appreciate it. So hopefully you'll uh, come back again someday. Absolutely. It's been an, op- an amazing opportunity. I'm grateful to be a guest on the show and I look forward to future conversations for sure. All right. Thank you. 